0: The Emissions Trading Scheme is the government's attempt to put a price on carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. It aims to use financial incentives to discourage people from emitting any more greenhouse gases than they have to. But it's received less than universal acceptance. Eric Frickberg has been exploring the scheme and reactions to it.
1: This program is an ABC of the ETS, the Emissions Trading Scheme the government's preferred method to help fight climate change, currently making halting progress through Parliament. But before looking further into what the emissions trading scheme is, why have one? I'm outside the building housing the National Institute for Water and Atmospheric Research, and inside is a man who can answer that question of why with certainty. He's Dr David Ratt, the Institute's Chief Climate Scientist. There's been an upward
2: trend in temperatures over the last century, sea levels are going up, snow in the northern hemisphere is tending to decrease, the amount of ice in the Arctic seems to be trending downwards, and glaciers around the world are in retreat. So,
1: no doubt that warming is going on. But climate change is more than just global warming with its on the face of it not so bad aspects. Fewer winter chills, a longer cricket season, and better growing weather for plants like these at Wellington's Botanical Gardens where I am now. Dangers too for these same trees. There'll be storms, winds, constant battering by harsh and unpredictable weather, and more than just poor conditions for an outing, poor conditions for economies around the world. Storms could savage crops and settlements. Water levels could endanger already impoverished people in places like the Ganges Delta. A landmark report by the British economist Sir Nicholas Stern argued the entire Indian subcontinent could suffer a shortage of something as basic as drinking water.
0: If you think for example of the way that the uh, glaciers and snow caps in the Himalayas would reduce, that would mean that the water supply to uh, hundreds of millions of people, perhaps a billion people, would be very severely affected because those glaciers and snow caps hold the water through the year. The risks are very big, and unless we act soon to reduce those risks, they will become very difficult to deal with.
1: Faced with dangers like this, governments, mainly of developed countries, created mechanisms to discourage the emission of greenhouse gases. Initially, the New Zealand government wanted to impose a carbon tax. After all, it taxes cigarettes and alcohol, so why not add a third tax on sin, on carbon dioxide emissions, and hopefully steer people towards environmental righteousness that plan failed to win support from small parties. So the government came up with a new proposal, an emissions trading scheme. The cabinet minister in charge of this, David Parker, explains briefly how it would work. It creates
2: an incentive on all of those that produce greenhouse gas emissions to produce less of them. Because it rewards them financially if they choose lower emissions because they get money in their pocket and it costs them if they increase their emissions.
1: The aim of the exercise is to bring down average greenhouse gas emissions for developed countries to 5% below 1990 levels. New Zealand's national goal is milder than the average. It has to equal 1990 levels. David Parker says the scheme will help achieve this by making it financially worthwhile for companies to clean up their act.
2: Take a power generator, for example. If they've got a choice between building a new coal-fired power station and building some renewables like wind, then it becomes relatively cheaper to build wind and more expensive to build a coal-fired power station. And so, as a consequence, you get more renewable electricity and less fossil-fuelled electricity. It impacts throughout the economy on everything that produces emissions, and that's why an economic instrument like an emissions trading scheme or a carbon tax would have the effect of encouraging investments in cleaner technology and discouraging investments in dirtier technology.
1: From lawnmowers in a garden to trucks and cars on a motorway to industrial boilers powering a factory, all engines emit carbon dioxide. People using them will have to pay for that CO2. It won't be cheap. Petrol will rise by at least 4 cents a litre and possibly 12 or more cents depending on how expensive carbon credits become. Genesis Energy expects to pay $100 million a year to offset emissions from its coal and gas-fired power stations. The money will go to projects like wind farms that don't produce greenhouse gas emissions or to forests that actually absorb CO2 from the atmosphere. This process has a cumbersome bureaucratic expression internalizing the externalities, and a t-shirt slogan that makes the same point, that the polluters pay, that the non-polluters earn. The New Zealand proposal will eventually cover all sectors of the economy and all greenhouse gases. Not just carbon dioxide, but methane, nitrous oxide, hydrofluorocarbons, perfluorocarbons and sulfur hexafluoride. The whole sorry six, pushed out into the atmosphere increasingly by human activity and blanketing the earth, causing slow but steady warming. But how will people work out how much is actually being emitted by any particular company? Not by getting government inspectors to hang round chimneys, clipboard and meter in hand. David Parker.
2: The major emitters like the big power stations that burn coal, uh, they're the ones that have an obligation to account for their emissions. For every tonne of coal that they burn, uh, it's a simple mathematical formula as to the amount of carbon dioxide that's produced, and they have to have emission permits covering that emission. They have to buy them from other people who have got emission permits or cover their emissions one way or another. We uh, trust these uh, big organisations to be honest in their returns and penalise them if they're not because we know that for every tonne of coal you burn, then you produce uh, a couple of tonnes of carbon dioxide
1: and the exact formulas are prescribed under the legislation. This method matches that of the Inland Revenue Department. It doesn't check up on every tax return that it gets, but it does do spot audits at random and harshly penalises anyone caught cheating. Under the proposed formula for emissions trading, a car fleet switching from pure petrol to hybrid could make on the deal. A car fleet going the other way would pay. On the face of it, the scheme sounds logical. Rather than employing armies of inspectors to check up on factories, get market forces to do it for you, offer profits to those who clean up their act, and financial losses to those who don't. But there's more to it than that. Not everyone is incentivised equally big companies in agriculture are being let off the hook, for a time at least. According to one critic, Jeff Bertram of Victoria University, these powerful groups have lobbied their way into a favourable position compared with the rest of us.
3: The ETS is a dog's breakfast. It's, a, it's a, a
1: poor, inefficiently
3: designed tax policy and it's very unfair. effectively amounts to extracting wealth from the the poor and passing it to the rich. I mean, the ETS does very little about uh, about dealing with our emissions. It does very little about seriously meeting the Kyoto Bill. It does nothing to push technology along in New Zealand and it gives a lot of people the feeling that they can win holidays from their obligations as emitters simply by lobbying the government. in, In all of those respects, the ETS is a disaster.
1: Dr Bertram's anger is generated by special exemptions granted to big business and agriculture. Under the proposals, they'll be able to produce 90% of the level of emissions they produced in 2005 free of charge and only have to pay for the remaining 10%. That free issue will start to abate a decade from now and by 2030 will be completely gone. By then, everyone will face the music. But Dr Bertram says ordinary citizens will face the music much sooner. So will small to medium-sized companies and electricity and petrol consumers. Simon Terry of the centrist think tank, the Sustainability Council, thinks that's not fair.
4: For the first five years of the scheme, those who emit only 30% of the emissions will be paying 90% of the costs arising under the ETS. That's a highly inequitable distribution of the Kyoto bill. It's not fair and it's not efficient.
1: Under the proposal as it stands, the partially free ride will not be offered to the vast majority of New Zealand companies. The threshold between them and those who get free credits is still being worked on. Wherever it ends up, Simon Terry sees this principle as a major wealth transfer to large corporations.
4: The degree of exemptions and corporate welfare being delivered to these companies is beyond what you would think would be required for a transition effort to bring companies that are facing steep bills for emissions compliance into the scheme. Instead of something which looked at what was their ability to meet these charges and still remain in business, there is a lump sum being devoted to um, the businesses as a set, and it will be handed out uh, on a basis still to be allocated that results in over $1.4 billion in the first five to ten years being provided to these companies.
1: On the face of it, this seems like a case of Robin Hood in reverse. But the Minister, David Parker, says if you don't make allowances, big business could shut up shop in New Zealand, move to countries without any controls and carry on emitting the same greenhouse gases into the same atmosphere and probably do so more. There's
2: no advantage to the world environment by forcing the closure of New Zealand steel production, for example, only for it to relocate to China and be using dirty electricity produced from fossil fuels and perhaps even have less efficient manufacturing processes for the smelting of their metals. So it is global warming, not New Zealand warming. So whilst it's important to create an economic signal for new investment so that the new investment is clean and to encourage retrofitting of clean equipment where it's possible to do so, it would be ridiculous to drive it so hard that we closed
1: down New Zealand business only to see... Corresponding emissions increase offshore. But I guess the problem is that people like myself can't relocate to Pakistan, nor can SMEs, ordinary householders, car drivers. We can't go. Those who can go are getting a reward, and the rest of us who are stuck here are sort of missing out. We'll have to pay the full cost. Uh, No, that's not right either.
2: Um, To the extent that New Zealanders buy steel from the New Zealand steel mill, they'll get the benefit of the emission reductions, uh, the emission units that are conferred on the steel mill. So no, I don't agree
3: with
1: that. Despite the special rights granted to big business, many of them are still deeply unhappy with the scheme. One of the biggest is the giant metals and mining transnational Rio Tinto, which runs the former Camalco aluminium smelter near Invercargill. Despite a long history of special advantage, such as cheap electricity, Rio Tinto says the emissions trading scheme, as proposed, could force it to close the smelter down. This is what the company's Asia-Pacific President, Xiaoling Liu, warned a Parliamentary Select Committee in May.
4: Rio Tinto, as an international business, will continue to support the New Zealand operation as long as it is cost-effective and competitive. Frankly, it may not be so if the bill is passed in its current form.
1: Some critics think Rio Tinto is trying to protect its profits, not its survival, with other people's money. Rio Tinto has stayed silent on its threat in subsequent weeks. James Weir, who's business editor for the Dominion Post, made some calculations in the wake of Rio Tinto's threat to pull out and emerged sceptical.
3: It's a highly profitable plant. It is one of the most efficient in the world. It has a very cheap power source from Manipuri Station. It would be extremely surprising that they would cut and run from New Zealand. Their profits a couple of years ago were close to $300 million, very well up on the previous year. The world price of aluminium is extremely high at the moment,
1: so I think it is a big bluff. They're here to stay for the long term. But a lobbyist working on behalf of large companies, Catherine Beard, is warning against making assumptions about Rio Tinto's actual intentions.
0: Those big multinational companies are very concerned about their international reputations and they're very concerned about playing with a straight bat in this area. The reality today is that we are in a global market. Money flows around the world. Most of the big multinationals already are operating in China and through Asia. And for them, uh, you know, they look at the balance sheet. They look where they're going to get the best return on investment. There's going to be no getting away from that.
1: Catherine Beard's lobby group is called the Greenhouse Policy Coalition, It represents large energy-dependent companies such as Steel Mills, whose industrial processes are so intensive they often can't avoid emitting greenhouse gases, even if they want to. She says for them the 90% free offer in the government's proposal is not as good as it seems.
0: Not every company's going to end up with 90% of their 2005 emissions. That 90% uh, becomes the size of the pie, if you like. Every company that's deemed eligible, who's trade exposed and energy intensive, and those tests have yet to be defined, they then have to work out how to carve up that allocation. So theoretically, some companies could get 90, some could get 60, depending on the criteria that's arrived at. The details of allocation are still being worked through by technical advisory groups, so there is no, you know, there's no methodology yet.
1: There's another problem facing big business. Many of them have already drastically cut their emissions, often with government encouragement, and a few options left to make further progress. Catherine Beard.
0: 2005, I guess, is a line in the sand, but for some companies that have um, undertaken considerable early emission reduction action, that could be incredibly disadvantaging for them because they've already uh, invested a significant amount in reducing their emissions. And I know that a lot of the companies, for example, in the pulp and paper sector, have reduced emissions down to 1990 levels. Huge efforts have actually already gone on. So if you've already invested a whole lot of money in reducing your emissions before 2005, then there may not be much more you can do internally to reduce your emissions. So um, that is a real problem.
1: Arguments like these have helped stall progress on the emissions trading scheme. The government is seeking allies in Parliament, aware that some critics think it's too mean towards big business, others that it's too generous. But its problems are still worse with the agricultural sector. The formidable farming lobby is being brought into emissions trading ahead of its counterparts in other countries. The government says it has no choice, since farm emissions account for 49% of New Zealand's total emissions, against 12% for developed countries generally. But that has not allayed people like Frank Brenmull of Federated Farmers,
5: which has fought a formidable rearguard action. The dairy industry will be most affected because uh, on a per-animal basis their emissions are highest. I did some calculations based on a new calculator that came out on the internet the other day that suggested for an average farm I would have to put in the order of 20% of my farm into pine trees and reduce the stocking rate accordingly. And I took 350 cow farm and it had to go down to 275 cows, so we had to drop 75 cows. And I have to do that every 20 years. And so you're looking at a system where in the order of 80 years you've got no farming left. And so the question that New Zealanders really have to ask them is can New Zealand do without farming as an industry in the long term? Frank Brenmill says for every
1: one person who works on a farm, four or five other people depend on that income. He says it's crazy to put this at risk, though he says farmers would consider it if other countries took the same path. But critics counter dairy farmers are now well placed to make greenhouse gas payments because high dairy prices have brought them generous incomes. Furthermore, farming generally has already received the most favourable treatment of any sector. David Parker says one of the problems in bringing in this scheme is that everyone agrees climate change is a problem, but says, not me, him, when it comes to doing something about it.
2: What emitters from all, all shades want is the right to increase their emissions at no cost to them. Now, under the Kyoto Protocol, all of the developed countries have agreed that they take financial responsibility for increases in emissions, and that's already true in the New Zealand economy. So if we allow any sector to increase their emissions but not pay the cost of it, effectively the cost of those increased emissions falls on the taxpayers. There's no free lunch here. Now, that those, some of those emitters would like that to happen. They'd like taxpayers to bear the bill rather than pay it themselves, but that would be wrong for the country. It would increase New Zealand's total bill, It would all fall on taxpayers, and those who have got the ability to reduce emissions by choosing
1: lower emission alternatives over higher wouldn't be incentivised to do so. Mr Parker's basic argument is that self-interest is driving many of the objections to his government scheme. But there are real concerns about the methodology being used by the ETS, and those objections fall across all shades of opinion. Frank Brenmull says
5: farmers believe the carbon charge is being put in the wrong place. Why don't we calculate the carbon content of what we produce and charge it to the end customer and get all of those in the Kyoto Protocol to agree to have that charge go on the end customer so that we can reduce consumption. Whether it's the carbon that's embedded in the car that you buy, the TV that you buy, the bicycle you ride, or the batteries in a Prius, or in the cheese that you eat, everybody would pay the carbon content. When you export coal or petrol or diesel or oil, all of the carbon charge is charged at the point of consumption at the point at which that stuff is burnt. It is not charged to the producer. But in the case of food production, you charge the producer because it is, quote, too difficult to charge the customer. Now, to me, that's not a reason for not doing it. Under this scenario, a carbon charge would be put
1: on consumers a bit like GST. The government, though, wants to put the charge as close as possible to people actually producing goods to incentivise changes to production methods. Frank Brainmure counters this will put many farmers out of business. Catherine Beard has another fault with the government's methodology. She says a carbon charge should fall on environmentally inefficient companies, not on everyone.
0: What we would like to see in New Zealand is an intensity-based measure. Uh, Intensity is emissions per unit of output. So that if you are amongst the best in the world and you are benchmarked against the world's best practice and you meet world's best practice, you don't face a price of carbon. If you're above world's best practice, so you're more of an emitter, then you do face the price. And what that does is it encourages investment in new technology so that companies, to avoid having a cost of carbon, are always being driven to keep to world's best practice. If you are the best uh, emitters worldwide in terms of, you know, you're the lowest carbon footprint, I suppose, then your production should be able to increase and it should be displacing dirtier production elsewhere.
1: Further criticism comes at the other end of the spectrum. Jeff Bertram of Victoria University thinks the emissions trading scheme fails the Adam Smith tests of being affordable, fair and easy to understand. It is true that 30 years
3: from now, when all of the distortions have worked their way out, when everybody is subject to the tax, uh, we will move towards some sort of sensible tax, a uniform cost on carbon across the whole economy, same for everybody, uh, and with an incentive for people to save on their emissions when they can. We could have that tomorrow. Why do we have to wait 30 years? We could bring a carbon charge in right away, Not Big Bang, no cold turkey. We'd bring it in at a low level. Year by year, the price of carbon's going up. Eventually, we're going to converge to the world price of carbon. Sooner the better, but it doesn't have to be tomorrow. The way that the ETS is structured is designed to produce unnecessary shock and disruption. Electricity is going to go up by the full amount all of a sudden overnight in 2010. That's like a cleaver between the eyes for electricity consumers. The next year, up goes uh, motor fuel. Um, it doesn't have to be that way, that's not sensible. It's not what the um, international um, consensus of economic opinion says we should be doing about uh, climate change. The consensus is we need a ramp, that is a a steady transition that's properly managed and that's uniform in its effects across everybody in the economy.
1: David Parker says a steady and equal ramping up of carbon costs was considered and rejected. Every other
2: country in the world is doing about the same as we're doing. It is actually quite administratively difficult to take every sector in the economy into an emissions trading scheme on the same date because there's a bit of work in it and that's why Europe and Australia and states in the United States are going in in a transitional sense just as we are.
1: There are many other problems with the emissions trading scheme including the fact that its final costs are unknown since the costs of carbon credits and wind farms or forests could rise hugely in coming years. Probably because of these complexities, the emissions trading scheme is stalled in Parliament right now. The government needs the support of both New Zealand First and the Greens to get its scheme passed. New Zealand First is refusing to discuss the matter, saying it's still studying reports and won't speak to the media till it's responded to the government. The Green Party co-leader Jeanette Fitzsimons says her party is using this negotiating period to try to sharpen up the bill.
0: What we're looking for is a package that overall will be better than not having it. And that means it's got to be fairer in the way it shares the effort and it's got to be more effective for the climate. We think farmers should have to do something about their emissions before 2013. There has got to be a biodiversity standard for forest planting, so you can't get paid carbon credits for just cutting down regenerating native forest and putting pine trees in its place. There's a number of details like that that we're pursuing.
1: The Prime Minister, Helen Clark, hasn't given up hope on getting the bill passed before the election because she says the emissions trading scheme is essential to bring in environmental improvement in a way that is fair. The importance
4: of the legislation in front of Parliament now is that it hugely decreases the liability of the Kiwi taxpayer. Not to pass this legislation is uh, basically to vote for more deforestation and for passing the bill the Kiwi taxpayers. That's why the legislation should pass.
1: Despite these words, Helen Clark has publicly acknowledged the scheme might not get through before the election, which could put responsibility on the front-running National Party after the vote. Speaking at its recent annual conference, the party's climate change spokesman, Nick Smith, says he supports emissions trading in principle, but has big problems with the government's version of it.
6: We've listed six key areas where we want to see the bill changed. The first of those is around trying to get the right balance between the environmental objectives uh, and trying to keep the New Zealand economy and getting it growing. Our second area is the fact that the New Zealand government is choosing the scheme to be a real big cash cow. Officials say the government's set to make $23 billion from it. A third area of concern is trying to maximise the alignment of the New Zealand and Australian scheme. We're concerned the scheme disadvantages small business with a very high threshold for people to be able to get an allocation. We're concerned about the timetable for phasing out of the industry support and we also think an intensity approach as an interim measure, it's not going to work long term, But until you get a greater number of countries on board we need to take an intensity approach for the major industries, otherwise all we're going to do is export industries and emissions overseas, do nothing for global emissions and simply cost New Zealanders jobs.
1: Nick Smith wants the whole thing sent back to a select committee for more analysis and says National will seek to implement its changes even if the bill is passed before the election. Despite the numerous complaints about the scheme, many people think New Zealand is basically doing the right thing but messing up on the details and making it all so complicated that only the cerebral or the determined can fully understand it. But not doing it could be a lot worse. Adolf Strombergen is a Wellington economist who has looked at this. There's nothing PC about his style. Global warming could even be good for the New Zealand economy, he says, helping pastoral growth, for example. On the other hand, extreme weather events could cancel that out. And that's not all.
6: The other route by which climate change can affect us indirectly is through the policies that other governments might try and put in in response to climate change, such as European countries putting tariffs on goods that come from countries that do not themselves have emissions abatement measures. So if New Zealand, for example, doesn't pursue its emissions trading scheme, it could face the prospect of tariffs on our goods into Europe And that could have, again, a major effect on New Zealand's welfare.
1: In the end, some form of emissions trading looks certain to be established in New Zealand with the details, but not the basic philosophy, open to change. And just as everyone gets used to that, there'll be another pill to swallow. New Zealand's scheme is being introduced under the Kyoto Protocol and a much tougher successor agreement is currently being negotiated. That'll require still more savage cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, which will almost certainly be added on to whatever New Zealand manages to achieve under the emissions trading scheme being proposed now. In other words, you ain't seen nothing yet.
0: That programme was written and presented by Eric Frickberg. It was produced by Philip Tolley with technical production by Leanne Smith.